Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Gun violence, racism, both with direct impact on public health. In this hour, a conversation with CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky about how the agency is responding, especially to racism. And, of course, we'll get an update regarding COVID-19. Also, it's called the Southwest Georgia Agritourism Trail, and it spotlights the history and present-day work of black farmers here in Georgia. Important conversations coming up, but first this. The gunmaker of the assault rifle used to kill the 21 people this week down in Texas is a Georgia-based gun manufacturer. Daniel Defense is located in Black Creek, Georgia. That's in the southern part of the state. A statement on the company's website reads in part, quote, Our thoughts and prayers go out to the families and community devastated by this evil act. As reported in Governor Abbott's press conference, it is our understanding that the firearm used in the attack was manufactured by Daniel Defense. We will cooperate with all federal, state, and local law enforcement authorities in their investigations, close quote. Closer look contacted Daniel Defense to appear on the program. We have yet to receive a response. Now, in other news, as you know, it is Memorial Day holiday weekend. Officials at Atlanta's Hartsfield-Jackson Airport say they're expecting about 2 million folks this holiday weekend, as we hear from Alex Helmick. The Memorial Day holiday weekend is typically popular for traveling, and Hartsfield-Jackson expects to see half a million more people passing through the airport this year than last year as the pandemic kept many from flying. Officials say passengers should arrive early for their flights. On the roads, travel experts say half of Americans are still likely to drive for a holiday break, despite very high gas prices. The holiday travel and get-togethers come as COVID numbers are spiking across the country and in Georgia. Health officials say more than 15,000 people tested positive over the last week, up 4,000 from a week before. Alex Helmick, WAB News. Well, speaking of traveling, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp is extending the suspension of Georgia's gas tax gas tax throughout the middle of July, that is. It was set to expire Tuesday. Now, since mid-March, Georgia's gas stations have not been charging the $0.29 a gallon tax on unleaded and the $0.33 on diesel. Goodness, I take the bus. AAA says the average price of regular unleaded is $4.15 a gallon in the Atlanta area. A month ago, it was $3.75. And finally, there are going to be several Memorial Day events taking place to honor the nation's fallen military personnel. Throughout the state, many ceremonies are being held. The Georgia National Cemetery will hold its ceremony in Canton Saturday morning at 10 a.m. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. What constitutes a public health threat? 
Now, of course, we all know the pandemic is certainly one. But back on April 8th of 2021, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, of course, head of the CDC, declared racism a serious public health threat. And since then, Dr. Walensky and others within the CDC, well, they've been working to address the impact of racism on public health. And we're going to learn more about those initiatives and, of course, get an update on COVID-19 as Dr. Rochelle Walensky joins Closer Look again. Thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Welcome back. Thanks so much. I was so delighted to be back with you. Before we get into our conversation, Dr. Walensky, and we should note for our listeners, you were booked before these horrific mass killings in Buffalo and, and down in Uvalde, Texas. But I want to give you space to offer reflection either on behalf of the CDC or your own personal views, just in general, again, with our nation dealing with these mass shootings and this time children. Um, yeah, so it, it leaves us speechless yet again. Um, certainly my heart goes out to those families, those victims of those in Buffalo, of those in Baldy, Texas. Um, and, and truly the, this um, is a serious public health threat. Um, I think when we look at um, the years of life that have been lost um, from the massacre in Buffalo, over 150 years of life on average that have been lost, um, when you look at children, what has been lost in, in Evaldi, Texas, we can, we can tally over 1,300 potential years of life that have been lost. And I think when we look at this as a public health issue, that the, um, we really do have to do something about um, mitigating gun violence and gun threats. And so um, we at CDC are working on this. We um, have research in, in understanding um, and the impact of gun violence. Um, we just last month actually had um, a research that was demonstrated that in the wake of this pandemic, we have seen um, uh, firearm associated homicide up 35 percent. Mm -hmm. um, we do know that suicide is um, about over half of suicide is related to firearms. Um, so we are hearing about tragedy after tragedy and, and certainly many over the last two weeks, week. Um, but what we're not hearing about is the individuals mm -hmm. um, and, and that too have tallied to massive loss of life. So um, yes, uh, so much we could be saying about this. You have personally said gun violence is a serious public health threat. And I want to be clear for our listeners, but does this, does the CDC need to officially declare like in a statement like you've done with racism that gun violence is a public health threat? I just want to be clear for our, our listeners. We have done that. We have done that. So you we have done that. that. So we that is the... Yes. And in fact, we're doing where to the extent that we have capacity to fund research projects, we are doing those now. We have 18 active research projects ongoing to understand the impact and what can be done about it. And, and welcoming, to be clear, welcoming gun owners to the table so that we can understand and we can learn and work together in a collaborative effort. Having that declaration means you are able to get some solid funding research, which had been stalled for so many decades um, due to some heavy lobbying efforts, I think it's it's fair and clearly it's it's been noted that organizations like the NRA had been an issue in, in the past, but now we're moving forward. So you all can do research. Um, yeah, we received about $25 million in um, 2020 to actively do research. Those research projects are underway. We're learning right now. We anticipate having some some output from those research projects, in fact, later this year. Last year, in declaring racism a public health threat, and in a statement you said, I'm going to quote you here in part, you said, you know, racism is not just the discrimination against one group based on the color of their skin or their race or ethnicity, but the structural barriers that impact racial and ethnic groups differently to influence where a person lives, where they work, where their children play, and where they worship and gather in community. Then you went on to say, these social determinants of health have long life negative effects on the mental and physical health of individuals in communities of color. And the reason I picked that statement, because I'll get emails from people, got one just recently, that don't understand why the CDC is focusing on racism and can you, what evidence do you have? Now, I know the answer to this. I'm just telling you what they said. But someone needs to know the evidence that you have correlating this relationship between racism and public health. 
Yeah, I, I think this is really important. First of all, let me say, I think racism is the root cause of many health disparities. Um, it does, it is impacted by where people live, where they work, where they pray, where they get educated mm -hmm. and their opportunities moving forward, their, their social determinants of health moving forward. Um, we have, uh, I, I will maybe just note that um, we declared racism a serious public health threat. We re-energized our commitment to this in April. And, and since then, we are working together now with 200 departments of public health across the country who have done similarly. And I think that there really now is a motivation and a movement to do so. Um, we are working now um, through CDC, um, through many different efforts, weaving racism, weaving health equity into everything we do every day. So for example, if we had had um, people workforce, public health workforce living and working in the communities that they serve, um, then we might very well have had more inspired, more um, robust vaccination efforts, more mm -hmm. trusted vaccination efforts. We've learned that through, through this vaccination campaign over the last year and a half. We have um, worked to, uh, through these efforts to have a chief health equity officer in our COVID-19 response. And now moving forward, we'll have a chief health equity officer in every um, uh, response that we have at CDC. Um, and then we're also working in things like environmental justice and mm -hmm. how can we use social vulnerability to look at indices of environmental justice. So we're weaving this in everything that we're doing every single day. You talked about then the, the partnerships that are that are needed. And if you say, look, the CDC has a critical role to play in addressing the impact of racism on public health, how did you all begin to outline and, and not just what to do, but where to begin. You know, the, one of the first thing that was, things that we did was we actually mobilized and looked at the efforts that we had underway and our 12,000 employees at the CDC and our many centers that were doing all that were doing um, efforts and conducting efforts individually within their centers. And then we mobilized and, and did a sort of a landscape and understood what was going on. The next thing that we did was we, um, we mobilized efforts to say, okay, now we want to not just document the problem, we want to implement solutions. And so we um, asked our centers and our divisions to come forward with um, potential solutions for how we could implement, how we could see the challenges. Some of that is like just even seeing our surveillance data. Do mm -hmm. our surveillance data collect the important racial and equity um, parameters that we need to understand how we're doing? Data will drive this. Some of this is outreach at our um, state and local jurisdictions. Some of this is mobilizing workforce. And so we have actually collected over 150 proposals um, to move forward and take the efforts that are already ongoing um, and lift them up um, at the jurisdictional level to understand exactly where we are from a data standpoint, from a collaborative standpoint. So what then does, a, I guess, a probable outcome look like from all of this? And I know you you, you can look into your, your Walensky crystal ball and say, well, we hope that it could be X, Y, and Z. But if you could give our listeners just maybe what you hope comes out of this. Um, I think it's going to be in numerous different levels. I, I would like to take some big audacious goal and say we're going to reach and strive for our big goal and we're working towards one of those goals right now. But the other thing that we will do is at every level incrementally make differences. So we will, we did, for example, have our first report on vaccination in our LGBT community. Now, on the one hand, that would seem obvious that we should be able to say how well our LGBT community Q community is vaccinated. On the other hand, we hadn't previously been even able to, to collect those data. So the fact that we can now report it because we have the data, the surveillance data is really um, an important key metric that we now can look at. So, so we're looking at the data, we're looking at implementation at the community level um, to be able to really say, what are the differences that we're able to make and to be held accountable for those differences? Well, then community externally let's move internally then because you mentioned and i love that word key metric I, I use metric a lot on this show but what are the key metrics that you'll use to address how you're using it within the cdc in terms of health and racial equity yeah so this has to be an effort that is not just externally focused but internally focused as well and we've um hired 
and worked with Aletha Maybank, who is part of um, uh, the Department of Health and uh, Mental Hygiene in New York to, to mobilize our efforts internally as well. This means opportunities, uh, equal opportunities within the agency, equal opportunities for hire, opportunities for detail. So we're working both at the external uh, agency, but also within the agency as well. One of the health crisis, there are a few, but one that we've been covering a lot on this program has been uh, the disparity as it relates to uh, maternal mortality. And you, of course, know here in Georgia. And I'm curious, I, I imagine this is an area you all are going to make sure there's there's some res more research into as well. Yeah, and we actually have uh, resources in the presidential budget to, to do so. Um, clearly an issue here in Georgia. It is on our um, high goals, um, our, our big goals moving forward, not just with challenge in Georgia, but challenge um, nationwide. We're looking to expand our maternal, maternal mortality review committees. We have one of those here in Georgia, which is excellent. Our Hear Her campaign, um, really understanding what are the challenges that women have in their postpartum period of time and to listen and to impact and to, to do something about them. So um, efforts and resources that we need to expand um, our breadth and depth of what we can do um, to, to shrink the real challenges mm -hmm. of maternal mortality in this country. If you just join us, I'm in conversation with Dr. Rochelle Walensky, the director of the CDC, of course, based here in the Atlanta area. And, and Dr. Walensky, when we talk about all those initiatives and everything that you laid out and someone listening says, that sounds great. But we, when we look to the future of, of healthcare personnel, and of course I've been hearing and, and, and we've done segments about the shortage of black male doctors, just a shortage of nurses in general. And I think of the role that medical institutions can play as well. Are you all weaving them? Are they part of all this collaboration too? Because if you're going to talk about how do we shorten this gap when, when it comes to inequities and disparities, you got to have folks who represent the communities that are mostly impacted. And if we keep hearing that there's a shortage, how do you turn that around? Yeah, I think that this is a really key point. So coming into this pandemic over the last decade, during numerous Zika, Ebola, H1N1, we came in with a deficit of, of about 60,000 public health workers. And that's not just healthcare workers, that's public health workers. Um, we need those um, public health workers to be as diverse as the communities they serve. We need them in the communities. And I have said that if we had um, public health workers working in churches and community-based organizations to sort of talk about blood pressure control mm -hmm. and nutrition and many other things, they would have been trusted people for, and, and health would have improved long before the pandemic and really would have been go-to people and resources for questions like, um, do I need to be testing right now? Should I get a vaccine? Should I vaccinate my child? Um, all of those questions, you would have had a trusted messenger. So in fact, we do need those public health workers and those are gonna take time to invest in, time mm -hmm. to train, and time to invest in. So, so grateful for the resources that we have right now, but we're gonna to need to invest in them over sustainable periods of time so that we can have those people in the communities at the public health level and at the healthcare worker level. Folks like you in important, who hold important roles, and I've asked, asked this question, no one wants to admit, I mean, people will admit, okay, politics and public health should never ever intersect, but they do. But let's be clear, too, if a new administration comes in, some of your work, some of your initiatives, even you could be gone. And I don't know. I don't know if that keeps you up at night. I mean, you just or you take it day by day. But it's like, you know, we've been down this road before and, it, and that's on both sides of the aisle. Yeah, I, I think that certainly that is a reality we're all living with. Um, I think the most important thing that I can do is lay a groundwork and a framework so that we in the public health workforce and the public health infrastructure are better prepared. That may mean in a public health workforce, it very much means in data collection and data visibility. Um, do we see the data that are out there? Do we have um, the authorities to see how race, ethnicity, um, sexual orientation, our, our, uh, how we're doing, rural urban divides, how are we doing in our vaccination efforts? So, so all of that is the groundwork that we are laying right now so that there's pure visibility, um, whoever it is who's in public health in the future. 
you and I have talked about lessons learned in terms of from this pandemic. Do you think that these lessons are clear and are resonating with those policymakers, those in Congress up in Washington, who, for let's be really clear, can really impact what you all do through cuts, through budget cuts, funding, whatever? Do you think now, because of what we've been going through the last two years with this pandemic, perhaps it's, it is resonating the importance of a solid public health policy and guidelines for this nation? I think um, certainly there are politics involved. There's no question. But I do think that people have, first, I think people are want to be done with the pandemic. Um, that has been two and a half years challenging, million lives lost, souls lost. Um, and people want this to be in their rearview mirror, and it's not entirely clear that it is yet. So sympathetic to both the families that have lost loved ones, but also to the fact that this has people have lost livelihoods, and this has been challenging. Um, that said, I think people recognize that the investment in public health over the last decade has not been where it needed to be in order to um, in order to get us to a place where we had a solid foundation for public health to work in in, in a pandemic and certainly in the future. Well, let's talk about the pandemic, um, because as you know, when you've been on this program, that's what we talked about. Uh, it's a big holiday weekend, Memorial Day weekend. Folks are out and about. I uh, don't know what your plans are, but um, can we expect to see a little bit of a surge maybe some weeks down the road because of this is a big weekend? Yeah, maybe what I'll just start by saying is we're in a different place now than we were a year ago, a year and a half ago. We have tools. Um, we didn't always have the tools. And quite honestly, when you look at the horizon, the tools have come to us swiftly. We have a uh, vaccine and boosters that mm -hmm. can protect people. We have tests available. We have an antiviral available, Paxlovid, that keeps people from getting severe disease if they take it in the first five days. And we have masks, um, not a fun tool, not a, not a welcome tool, but certainly a tool that can prevent infection. So the real question is how well are we gonna mobilize and use these tools in this moment? We know about 55% of Georgians have uh, received uh, their primary series. Only about a third of those have actually been boosted, and that's going to keep people out of the hospital. Mm -hmm. And so critically important, if, you're, uh, if you haven't been vaccinated, if you haven't been boosted, go ahead and do so. If you're going to gather with loved ones, go ahead and take a rapid test before you gather. Make sure that you're negative. If that rapid test is positive, reach out and see if um, you're the, a good candidate for Paxlovid, keep you out of the hospital. So I think the moment right now is how well are we, and smart, are we gonna be in using the tools that we have now at our disposal, we're fortunate to have at our disposal in order to prevent severe disease. That said, um, going into a holiday weekend, we do have a lot of people gathering, a lot of people traveling, and we have seen in surge in infections that occur, increase in infections that occur around holiday times. You know, I asked you about accountability as it relates to lawmakers. I want to give you now an opportunity to talk about or admit if there were missteps or things you would have done differently as when you came aboard in terms of how the nation was responding to this pandemic to the coronavirus and folks, a lot of folks would point to the messaging, the back and forth. I think you and I have had that conversation, but what else, Dr. Walensky, do you think? You look back now and you say, you know, maybe we could have had a different approach in this area. Yeah, I think one of the biggest challenges has been that we have through this pandemic, we've been chasing a, um, a variant uh, or variants that um, require us to make uh, decisions with imperfect data and imperfect times. And sometimes we have to preempt those decisions before we have all the information that we would like to have in order to make those decisions. Um, and so that's challenging. We have had to pivot in, in, the, science, in the, the, the messaging because there's new science that comes our way. And so um, as we've done so, we've done so in order to do our best to mitigate against severe disease, to mitigate against, um, against deaths for sure. Um, and many of those decisions have not always been welcome decisions, certainly when, we, um, when we've had to make them. But um, I do think that given the, the moments that we've had, certainly I spend a lot of time um, thinking about whether we made proper decisions in the face of the science that we've had. Um, but, but I do think that part of the real challenge here has been the ever evolving science in the context of this pandemic. Well, to that note, do you think that this will be there's enough evidence, enough data out there that says maybe from now on, like we all get a flu shot 
that every year we'll have to get some type of booster or another shot for COVID-19? Um, I don't think we have a full a full line of sight on that yet. I do know that the FDA is looking at now what a fall booster will look like um, with an intent that we probably are going to need something heading into the winter. Um, what that looks like six months from now, a year from now, I don't think anybody really knows. Of course, one of the things that keeps me up at night is um, the potential for a new unknown new Greek letter um, that is potentially um, has the potential to evade our therapeutics and our vaccines. Certainly that is um, would be, you know, one of the real challenges that we would have to face and one of the things that we are working to mitigate against. We started this conversation, um, sadly, talking about those mass killings and then, of course, talking about your efforts as it relates to racism as a public health threat. What do you hope right now the conversation is in our nation? The focus should be in our nation right now as it relates to, we can start with gun violence first. Um, maybe I'll even go bigger than gun violence sure. and just saying looking out for each other. I think one of the real challenges here is um, over the last two and a half years is to be more inwardly and selfishly focused and to not look out for thy neighbor, wearing a mask for thy neighbor, um, caring about thy neighbor, um, understanding the impact of firearms um, for thy neighbor um, or for thy community or for thy school. Um, And I think um, really having a more externally focused, community-based focused, who's in need, who needs help, I think um, the, the nation should really reflect on, um, on helping one another at this moment. But something that we didn't get to, and I, we'll get to the, and it's, it sort of correlates, I believe, and that is when we have these horrific events, Dr. Walensky, and then there is the, the trauma involved, the mental health aspect. And often people want to focus on the, the mental health aspect of the gunman, and, and perhaps you should. But understanding the the toll this takes on a community, and particularly if you're talking about communities of color who feel like we are being targeted. I'm from a community of color. I'm speaking for a community of color right now. You know, they- no question, no question. I I, I think um, I, I think all of us were aghast at what happened last week in Buffalo. Um, targeted, racially targeted, clearly racially targeted, and and you know, speaking of social determinants of health, in in a in one of the only grocery stores in a community mm-hmm. where I um, so I, I think um, it's it's um, paralyzing for a community. It's I, I mean it's it's heart wrenching for a family member, paralyzing for a community, and quite honestly, I think paralyzing for the country. Um, to watch that happen. And then to see that going from a racially motivated event to one that impacted children so deeply. And so um, I, I think both of those are, are horrific in their own right. And I think really speak to what we need to do as a country to protect um, to protect communities, to protect the mental health of communities, to understand that much of this is related to adverse childhood experiences mm-hmm. and how we as a um, as a nation need to prevent adverse childhood experiences. How do we interact at the street level for street violence? How do we interact at the community level in hospitals? There's work being done um, at, in the prevention of adverse childhood experiences. This is all of the work that we need to do. And as you said, it's related to firearm violence, but it's also related to mental health. And then as we talk about racism, you obviously are a public health leader, not just nationally, but internationally as well. How do you see your voice then being, not just leading the CDC, but how do you see your voice being so critical right now because race and we have a feature coming up and just in a moment after this program about teaching what they call divisive concepts in school, which is related to race. How do you see you, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, being so critical in this whole conversation? You know, I think... I think I, I think I am, but I think we all are as well. I, I hold that responsibility deeply. I take it with me wherever I go. It was as I, I can't articulate how strongly I feel about it. I've been my, my prior career before coming to CDC was in care for people with HIV and AIDS. Mm-hmm. Um, and this the issues of health equity were quite apparent to me long before I got to the CDC. And so I need to use that voice. I need to use, my current position and that voice in my current position 
to, to articulate to the rest of the country and indeed the rest of the world, the import of this. Um, we as a nation, we as a world will never be healthier unless all of our communities are healthy. And we can only get that way if we um, inspire communities, work towards getting health across all of our communities. And that health is in hypertension and mm -hmm. diabetes and COVID and firearm violence prevention. Dr. Rochelle Olinsky. CDC Director. Dr. Walensky, thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it as always. Grateful for you. Thank you so much. Have a good weekend. You too. And Closer Look continues in just a moment from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Now, coming up, we want to tell you about the Southwest Georgia Agritourism Trail. But before we get to that, I want to bring you this. It is now illegal in Georgia to teach certain, quote, divisive concepts in public schools, including that the U.S. is systemically racist or individuals are inherently racist. That's according to the law. Critics say the law is an unfair attempt to omit some of the worst times in U.S. history, and as we hear from WABE's Martha Dalton, she visited Atlanta's Frederick Douglass High School, where one teacher isn't shying away from conversations about race. So y'all need to go ahead and outshine you. Students in Corinthia Howard Knight's American government class are taking a test today. They didn't know they were going to, and it's not the kind of test they're used to taking. It's a literacy test, the kind black people used to have to take during Jim Crow before they could vote. Now remember, if you get one question wrong, that means that you cannot vote. All right, everybody got it? They have 10 minutes to answer 30 questions. All of these ninth graders are students of color. Howard Knight lets them talk and work together during the test, but sticks to the 10-minute limit. How are you supposed to do this when it don't make sense in the first place? When time's up, she goes over the answers. One question asks voters to spell the word backwards, forwards. That caused some confusion. I did that wrong. I thought it meant my spell. Backwards, backwards. Lawmakers who drafted the Divisive Concepts Bill say it shouldn't interfere with what Howard Knight is doing, teaching history. But how does she teach that accurately? It was systemic. It was by basically the South to stop um, African Americans from voting. So they have to understand the history to understand what's going on now. What is going on now is a political fight over how race is taught. Critics of Georgia's new law say it could have a chill effect, meaning teachers will shy away from any conversations about race because they don't want to be penalized. Not Howard Knight, though. I'll still teach the same way because as a teacher, I don't give my personal opinion. I just give the facts and make sure that they have an accurate depiction of what history is all about. Because this is an American government class, Howard Knight has been teaching her students about many of the bills the legislature passed this year, including divisive concepts. On this particular day, she shows her class a bunch of slides, starting with one where Governor Brian Kemp is signing a stack of education bills, including the divisive concepts law. What are some of the things that constantly divide America at this particular time? Yeah. Uh, well, race. All right, very good, race. And that's basically what this law is all about. How can I, as a school teacher, sit here and actually talk about race in the classroom without offending others? Howard Knight says racist incidents need to be talked about in the classroom so they don't keep happening, like a recent high school basketball game in California where kids were shouting racial slurs. One of her students says those kids learned from their parents. Children are constantly watching adults because they have no one else to guide them. They have no one else to like teach them. And when they see an adult calling a black person a monkey, they'll do the same thing once they get older. Another classmate has a different take. I agree in industry because it's like you, yeah, you learn some things from your parents, but it's you learn some, you learn more things on the internet. Because look at nowadays, they they putting everything on the internet. Howard Knight goes through several more examples. A teacher who made black students pick cotton as part of a lesson on slavery, a racist promposal, and white celebrities in blackface. Howard Knight wants her students to connect what's happening in local government to their own lives. 
So in the next few years, they'll have to go to a city council meeting and next year we're planning where they can go to the state capitol so they can become more engaged. They're likely to run into fellow students there. When student rights are under attack, what do we do? Students were a persistent voice at the Capitol this year, testifying about education bills and in some cases, shaping them. That's something Howard Knight wants for her students, to find their voices and use them. Martha Dalton, WABE News. And always this note of disclosure, the Atlanta Board of Education holds WABE's broadcast license. We're back in a moment. And Closer Look continues. This is 90.1 WABE from Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. A new tourism collaboration hopes to celebrate and recognize the history and present-day work of black farmers in southwestern Georgia. The new Communities Land Trust, in partnership with Airbnb, launched the Southwest Georgia Agritourism Trail last week. Clinton Vicks is a fifth-generation farmer, inviting guests to his Vicks estate, farm and fishery near Albany, or as some folks say, Albany, Georgia. And he joins me now. And I like Clinton already because he's got long locks. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Rose. I love your locks also. What's going on with you, man? Everything is going lovely. This is um, actually the last day of school for we teachers. Mm -hmm. So I'm about to be able to get on my farm full time and I have been waiting to get out there in my soil. Uh, Let's let's just break for a moment. Uh, You're an educator and I just, how are you doing now? There's a lot been happening obviously in in our country the last couple of days. How are you holding up? I'm holding up well, Rose, um, and one of the reasons why is because I do something intentionally that you mentioned, which is take care of my mental health. And I also make sure that I focus on the mental health of my students um, through a lot of social emotional learning and culturally relevant pedagogy. So I'm coping because we prepare for these things. Um, We prepare for the worst, but hope for the best. Have they asked you questions, your students? And I don't know. My my students, you know, they came to me with the story because I focus on them with always being aware of current events and trying to get them to watch the news in the morning. So mm-hmm. they actually came to me with the story before I could come to them. And that's how I knew that it had registered with them. Be- because of all of the SEL, social emotional learning that we do, mm-hmm. they were able to talk it out amongst themselves. They had very mature questions and, and comments to make, and they're aware of what's going on and they know how it could impact them. I think often when we think about the social and emotional learning and, and the wraparound services, a lot of times people think it's probably for, you know, urban school districts or, or inner city or whatever you want to call it. But, you know, you teach in a rural setting. So I, I guess some yeah. would, yeah, you know, there, so there are some some similar aspects that you deal with uh, with the communities that your kids are coming from and, the, and actually, their needs. I actually taught in New York, D.C., and here in my hometown of Albany. So being able to compare actually the urban environment to a rural environment, there's very little difference when it comes to the trauma that the students have experienced and that they're dealing with every day, not only in the classroom, but as they live their lives. And so you mentioned, you know, your your hometown there. Tell me about your family history and agriculture there. Fifth generation? Wow. Fifth generation. I grew up helping my grandparents till the field with a plower, spreading fertilizer, as they called it, guana at that time. It's a nitrogen blend. Yeah. planting greens and picking tomatoes, going through the whole process, even going to the market and buying and selling. So those are memories that I had as a young child coming from Albany, Georgia. And I'm curious, Clinton, because fifth generation, this land has been in your family. They bought this, it. Was it passed down to them? There's, I know there's a story here. There is a story. So this land that I'm now cultivating, I've added to the 15 acres that was already a part of my family's land. So as a child that grew up in a home and with family owning land and understanding what that meant, it was always a goal of mine to make sure I'm a homeowner and landowner by 40. And I accomplished that goal. And fortunately, I was able to add about six acres to our family's 15. And it's only about two miles away from each other. So I'm really excited and proud of that. What made you stay? Because, you know, there have been so many stories and we know that folks not I mean, not just folks like you, but hey, you know what? I I grew up in rural. I want to get out, venture to the big city. You did some of that, but you came back. 
I did a lot of that. I was gone 18 years. Um, I came back because it was a calling inside that I can't explain because it's not of the physical. Um, mm -hmm. It drew me back home because I have a responsibility and obligation to my community. And I set out saying that I was going out to learn as much as I could, finish polishing myself and come back and reinvest in the people that helped build me. Wow, that is a great, I'd love to hear that. I got to come down there. Now let's talk about this fishery and farm. What y'all doing down there? We are having a great time. We're eating good food. We're listening to great music. And we are exchanging energy, making sure that we are decompressing from the stresses of the world and reconnecting with the simple things that make us enjoy the pleasures of life. Now, how did this collaboration come back and why did you, you know, you all work with this new Communities Land Trust? How did all this get started? Well, this actually all got started, Rose, because when I came back to Albany, I already wanted to open what I uh, was called a tea salon. So I was going to serve high tea and give classes on um, social etiquette as well as business professionalism. As I continued on and bought the home and property, I saw all of the opportunity that presented itself. And so all of the experiences that I had had living and working in New York and DC and traveling the world, I now saw, saw how I could bring all that together and, and offer my community an opportunity for growth. So let's say I come down and visit your farm, walk me through what that would be like. You know, I'm gonna, I'm well, gonna get this tour. You're gonna come through the gates of the Vicks estate and immediately you're gonna know that you've entered a place where the energy is different. And that's been the result of everyone who's come on my property. I'm intentional about positivity and good energy and making you feel empowered and rejuvenated when you leave. So we're gonna walk into the property. I'm gonna take you to the back and let you rest your things have a sit down. We're going to start the grill up and get ready for some great food, go out and look at the herb garden, see whatever we might be cultivating in the actual garden where the vegetables and fruits are. Go take a trip through the woods and, and travel back to where the pond is being restored. Really get a chance to just see nature in its finest. This is a will be an additional income for you all then if it's part of this, this sort of and this because Airbnb is somehow involved in this. So there is going to be some revenue. Be. Yeah, it will be. And the revenue actually is going to help to keep the farm running. Um, as we know, black farmers have a lot of history and unfortunately not good history when mm -hmm. it comes to being financed and getting resources. I personally experienced being turned down for a USDA loan, you know, even being a teacher owning a home. So I know the story and the, the the bad experiences that we've had. So this allows we black farmers to be able to recoup some of the money that we spend out of pocket and to ensure that black farmers have a continued legacy, being able to contribute to the country that we help to build. And so folks, can, can they also stay on your property as well? Or is it just a tour? For now, the Resora Plantation is offering overnight stays in their cottages at present. The Vicks Estate Farm and Fishery will open the inside and in, um, for overnight stays beginning in July. Right now, we're doing the outdoor experiences, which involve anything from barbecues to fried fish. Um, and we're looking forward to our Juneteenth experience, which is going to be a special experience that Saturday and Sunday. The Saturday will be a barbecue at the Vicks Estate, and the Sunday will be a brunch where we'll serve grits with shrimp. Now let's back up for a moment because we're about to make a major left here. Let's talk about this this fish frying for a moment. Yes. How, how y'all fry y'all fish, brother? Well, remember now, I'm from Albany, Georgia, so <laughs> I don't use I don't use any. I won't name a brand, but I mix all of mine starting with the meal. I don't want any seasonings in it. I add my own seasonings. I know how much salt, I know how much pepper, I know how much seasoning salt, and I'm not gonna give you my recipe, but just know. Come I on, can Clinton. Come on. Uh, to Clint, perfection. You will be the first person ever on this program to not to give me Rose Scott, beloved Rose Scott of Atlanta, or at least around Cheshire Bridge of Piedmont. Um a recipe. Everybody is Let, always giving. You're not going to give me a recipe. You're not going to give let's me. Let's make a fair exchange because I'm unique. So I know I would be the first to do something. <laughs> when you come and visit, I'll give you the recipe in person. How about that? <laughs> oh, Clinton, you're killing me. Okay, so the fish fry. Okay, all right. So you got the fish fry. And, and are you yes. also on the grill? You're doing the barbecue Oh, as well? I'm definitely on the grill. And you won't just see traditional Southern. I'll also be doing some jerk seasonings. I'm a master cook because I learned from the best. I learned watching my grandparents. My grandfather threw me on the grill at 12 years old uh, and say told it. me 
you're going to grill for the church. Fourth Sunday, they brought what was called boxes, and I was responsible for grilling for 200 people at 12. See, not just grilling for the family, but for the church. That's a big, Absolutely. that's how you learn. What, what, that's how you learn. And you know I didn't want to burn a piece, not for Papa. You better not burn a piece. And I didn't burn a piece. <laughs> Let me ask you this, then. What's the mis- mis- most, the biggest mistake people make about frying the fish? Well, what can you, then we'll go that in. What can you tell well, us? the biggest mistake they probably make is not having the grease at the right temperature. And I'm an old school cook, so don't ask me what that temperature is, but I know when it's there. You got to have the grease hot when you fry fish, and people turn food too much when they're frying. You don't need to continuously flip fish, chicken, pork chops, whatever you're frying. Leave it alone, let it rest. And that's what you're going to do when you come to the Vixen State. Rest. That's what we want you to do. Stop moving so much, and when you finish, <laughs> it's going to be a great product. With these tours and with, with people being able to come to you know, the VIX estates and some of the others, what are you also hoping to educate them about in terms of history and the plight of, of black farmers, not just here in Georgia, but to this nation and what they've meant? This is an opportunity for people to not only relax and enjoy, but also to learn in the process. We're able to connect the current population and current generation who don't necessarily know what farming is for the black community and for African-Americans who have an idea of farming being something where you're impoverished and it's sharecropping or it's enslaved people working in the heat and not seeing any kind of financial gain. So this is an opportunity for me to be a person that helps to serve as one of the new faces of black farming for America, as well as you get a historical aspect from people like Miss Shirley Sherrod, Mm -hmm. who has been a member in the fight from the beginning of civil rights, who can tell you how this whole movement started. So you get a full circle experience when you come on this agritourism trail that we're offering. You mentioned Shirley Sherrod, and I've actually had conversations with her, and I've actually interviewed Secretary Vilsack on this program not once but twice, and he has talked about this renewed initiative in addressing the systemic past and present issues for black farmers, indigenous farmers, Hispanic farmers. But through your lens, is 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 the White House, are they doing enough? I mean, there's there's some progress, but for some now, this has been going on for decades. They're waiting and waiting. They're owed money, access to loans. Are you feeling confident? Are you optimistic that this will be resolved in, in a, soon? I'm confident in me and I'm confident in my vision and I'm confident in my ability, much like my ancestors, to work through any type of obstacle that comes our way. Like I said, I was turned down for a USDA loan that would have helped me to project my vision as well as my project to another level and give back to my community immediately. Mm -hmm. However, I did not let that stop me. I found other ways, you know, search for grants. So what I know is we will survive, we will push through, and we're doing that collaboratively. And that's what's helping us to overcome all of the roadblocks that seem to be in the way of us receiving the funds that we're supposed to get Mm -hmm. from these, you know, farm initiatives research and this may be astounding to some but you know over the past century and i'm quoting here black farmers in america have lost over 12 million acres of farmland a result of discriminatory policy and business practices that have denied black farmers with access to the resources needed experienced it directly my great great grandfather washington banks lived in leesburg georgia That was a town that was unfortunately plagued with racism during that era. The courthouse was burned down Mm -hmm. in it contained the documents to the deeds for land and property. And so my family lost a lot of the initial farmland that had been owned by my ancestors as well. My maternal aunt um, went and recouped some and was able to purchase. So she owns 10 acres of of land um, and that's maternal um, aunt. However, I've experienced that in my family. So we know that story all too well. It's not just government. It's also Mm -hmm. been systems that have been allowed to exist, you know, because of the powers that be. What do your students say or what is their perception of the agricultural business or they think it's all remember that old that old show Green Acres? (laughs) I do. I do. I do. What is their perception of of this as a, a viable occupation here? 
Well, you'd be surprised, and I was as well. I've had a couple, and I say couple meaning two students, who were actually already involved in agriculture, and they were ready, willing, and able to come and assist me on my farm. I pay my students out of pocket. So they've been very excited about mm -hmm. the opportunity. However, there have been a lot of students that didn't have any type of connection to farming. And like I said, they had a negative impression of what it was. So by seeing me and interacting on a daily basis and me sharing the things that I'm doing on my farm, not just tilling the soil, but also getting into things like organic farming and hydroponics and, mm -hmm. you know, STEM. I have 4-H out on my property a month after I bought it just so I could host a learning STEM workshop where I had science teachers from the school system come out and teach the students about soil erosion. And I had a, an elder from the community, Karen Lawrence, to come out and speak about the connection between we as people and our spirit and the earth and our obligation to give back and to maintain it. So this is more than, than just about agritourism. This is about healing. Mm -hmm. This is about what we want to leave for the generation to come. And this is about what we can contribute while we're here. My friend Carl texted me, let's go. And I got another friend in an email. I'm booking for Juneteenth. <laughs> I want to see you guys. You know, I am so blessed to be able to do something that I've been doing all my life. And that's tending to people. Um, mm -hmm. I'm a teacher because that's what I was meant to do. Um, and this is not just the physical. This is also the mental, the spiritual, the whole well-being of the person. So this is a holistic experience. And I want you guys to come out and just relax and, and have a great time. Now, you mentioned some of the the teas and the and the herbs on your on the farm. Can, will you at least share some of that since you're not going to give me the catfish recipe? I will. You know, I'm growing everything from fresh basil to lemongrass to your rosemary, your thyme, you know, peppers. And we have all different kinds of mints. I let my students know they can pick the mint right off of the plant and they chew it up and they taste what real mint, real spearmint mint. and sweet mint tastes like. So it's a wonderful time that I get to continue educating people and having fun while doing. Let me ask you this, because I'm asking for a friend. If someone doesn't necessarily have the garden or, or the backyard, what can they plant in like those little planters on their balconies? Like what's a good, what's something As real quickly? Long as you have access to water, soil, and sunlight, you can plant in anything. So tell them, get a small bucket, puncture some holes so that it can be aerated, get some soil, put a plant in there, water it, and let it get some sunlight, and talk to it. The, the, the exchange of, of gases is the scientific aspect, but also the exchange of energy, you know, is the, is the more connectivity that I think helps the plant to grow. All right, Clinton Vicks fifth generation farmer inviting guests to his Vicks Estate Farm and Fishery. This is near Albany, Georgia. This is all part of the New Communities Land Trust in partnership with Airbnb where folks you can all book and, and get a tour and, and stay. Not at, You can't stay at Clinton's house now, but it's with Just the Southwest yet, Georgia. <laughs> the Southwest <laughs> Georgia Agritourism Trail. Thank you so much. Wonderful conversation. I'm coming down there. I'm looking forward to it. Come on down. All right. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. He'll probably ride his bike to Albany. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And, of course, if you missed any of today's program, it's online, wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org slash election 2024.